What we're going to be talking about is the importance of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church is the people. The church is not just a location or, or an organization. The church as the people of God, the significance of us to gather together with one another. Now, some of you might be thinking, but we're already here. Like the people that need to hear this message are the people who aren't here right now. We've already made the choice. We've already decided it's important enough that we showed up on a Sunday. We don't need to hear a message about why it's so important to show up with other Christians. We're here. But let me just give you, I'm going to talk to three groups of people about why I think what we're going to talk about today is important for all of us. And the first is that there's probably some of you here that, yes, you are here today. But if you were to be honest, you would say, I can't really say I make it a priority to show up on Sundays all the time. This happened to be one of the Sundays where there wasn't a better option going on. Like there wasn't a water skiing trip or there wasn't a kids tournament or something like that. And, and I'm not trying to, trying to downplay this, but just to say some of you, if you're going to be honest, you'd say, well, I gathered this morning, but I can't say that I always gather. So if that's where you're at, then while today you did make it a priority to be here with the body of Christ, you haven't set your life up in a way that you've said, this is of deep importance to me and I'm going to make sure that I can gather with God's people. Now, maybe there's a second group of people here that you'd said, but I have, I, I, I don't, you know, we don't do kids sports on Sunday. We don't go away. We, we really make sure we gather with God's people on Sundays and that we don't let other things get in the way. And that's great. But maybe some of you are in that category and then that's it. Sunday is it. You said, we're going to show up on Sunday, but that's it. That's my church commitment. And as you already heard from Phil, and as we're going to talk about this morning, being a part of this body, being a part of the people of God is much more than just showing up on Sunday. Because there's certain ways of participating in the life of what God is doing that we just, we can't accomplish in what we do on Sunday. Sunday is a huge important thing for us to gather together, experience the gospel together, experience communion together, sing songs together. It is a very important part of our lives as believers in Jesus. But there are things that we do with regard to one another that just don't show up on a Sunday in the same way. So you're going to be challenged, if you're in that group, you're going to be challenged to take your commitment to God's people beyond just what goes on on a Sunday morning. And now there may be a third group of people and you say, you know, not only do we make Sundays a priority, but we're involved in a life group. Like maybe you're even serving, you're serving with Life Kids or with Exit 83 or something like that. You say, we we really, we've, we've done what you guys say, we've done what the elders say is important as far as being involved in the life of this church. And the reason why you need this message is because even if right now you're participating in that level, there will inevitably be times where you are tempted to pull back and go it alone. And one of the reasons why I believe that that's true is because we live in a culture that really makes it pretty easy to believe that we can do things on our own. I mean, let's just do a quick survey. How many of you have Amazon Prime? All right. If you have Amazon Prime, you're like, pretty sure I can do it on my own. Pretty sure I can get anything that I need pretty quickly. I don't need to leave the house. It is easy in our culture today to think we can just do things on our own. And beyond that, historically, maybe one of the reasons why a lot of people felt like I need to go and gather with the church is because they said, well, how else am I going to hear good Bible teaching? And how else am I going to have a chance to hear great music that's going to stir my heart to worship? And you all know you don't need to show up at church to get those things anymore. 
If you have the internet, you have access to amazing Bible teachers from all over the world and even from the past as well as the present. And you have access to all kinds of amazing musicians and amazing worship music that, that will stir your heart. So there will be times where you will be tempted to say, I don't think I really need to gather. And this message is to, to solidify in us why we do what we do. And really, as we walk through a passage in Hebrews, what we're going to see ultimately is that walking in unity with Jesus means walking in unity with his people. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we believe we are united to the God of the universe. We believe we are united to Jesus Christ through his death on our behalf, the fact that he died for our sins to bring us forgiveness, and that he rose from the dead to bring us new life. We believe we are united to Jesus. And walking in unity with Jesus means walking in unity with his people. Jesus considered believers so important that he died for his church. And if we then turn around and say, well, I love Jesus, I don't really care about the church, we are not mirroring the priorities of Jesus. So this morning, we're, we're going to go through a passage in the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and start turning to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to go through verses 24 and 25. If you don't know where Hebrews is in the Bible, it's really towards the back. It's one of the last letters in the New Testament. I will have the verses up here on the screen, but if you have a Bible, it helps to be able to look on with it, and it even will help you kind of later on to see where it's placed. And as we walk through this, we're going to key in on this word unity. You already see it up there. Walking in unity with Jesus means walking in unity with his people. We're going to key in on that word unity because the author of Hebrews is going to bring out how we live out that unity with one another. And so I'll put the passage up here. The first thing that he's going to talk about is he's going to talk about the mindset of unity. He's going to say there's a certain perspective that goes into how we play out the unity that we have with one another. So verse 24, he says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, in a second, we're going to go back and we're going to see how we got here. But just look at how he starts. He says, and let us consider. That's the one command in these verses that we're going to go through. Let us consider. And not only is it a command, it's a command. And I love this. The author of Hebrews involves himself in the command. He doesn't just turn to his readers and say, all of you consider. He says, let's do this. Let us consider. And this is actually the third time in this short passage that he's used these words, let us consider do something. So we're going to go back to verse 19. We're going to get kind of a running start and see how we got here. Because what the author of Hebrews is doing is not just some surface command. It's much, much deeper. In verse 19, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, now when, when we turn to the next slide and look at the next verses, we're going to see the commands come. But I just want us to soak this in for a moment. The author of Hebrews is not just giving some surface advice. He's not just saying, you know what, let's all get together as a church because as human beings, we need each other. And when you're isolated, you get weird. And when you're isolated, you get lonely. So, you know, you need other people in your life. So this is just the latest pop psychology. It's not that at all. 
What he tells us in verse 24 is grounded in the deep realities that he is unfolding for us in verses 19 through 21. He's saying, this is the situation we find ourselves in. We now have access to God because of what Jesus did. In fact, when you see when he talks about the whole idea of the curtain, we get to go through the curtain. The curtain was open for us, and the curtain is the body of Jesus. He's using a metaphor that goes back to the fact that in the most holy place in the Jewish temple, the place nobody was meant to go, there was a curtain separating off that way. And when Jesus was crucified, that curtain was torn in two. Full access to God is given to us. We now have full access to God. We have a high priest who's not just a human being who kind of acts as a go-between between us and God. We have Jesus Christ. We have the one great mediator. We have full access to God. He's saying this is the context in which we are in. This is what we believe. And then in verses 22, 23, and 24, each time he gives us a command. Verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He says, you know what we should do because of all that God's done for us? We should draw near to God. Let's draw near to God. Let's not respond to this and say, well, now I'm forgiven. Now I have heaven. Now I know I'm going to be okay after I die. And I'll just kind of go on and coast until I get there. He says, why in the world would you live a life where you are reconciled to God and not draw near to him? Let's draw near to God. Let's walk with him. Let's talk with him. Let's pray to him. Let's embrace the forgiveness that he's given us. Let's read his words so that we know him better. Let's draw near to God. And not only that, he says in verse 23, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He says, you know, we've been united to Jesus Christ. We've been united to the God of the universe. Let's draw near to him and let's hold fast. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because God who made the promises is faithful. Let's not let any trial, any temptation, any distraction keep us from the hope that we now have in Jesus. Let's draw near and let's hold unswervingly. And then back to our passage, he says, and let us consider. Third command, draw near, hold unswervingly, and consider. And maybe after those first two, consider seems like kind of little league. It's like, all right, well, you know, draw near, that's a big deal, and hold unswervingly, that sounds great and theological. Consider just seems like JV team here. Let's take this in. Let's take him at his word and believe this is not just pop psychology. He has given us a deep command here. He says, let us consider. The word consider, if we're just going to go through this part by part, the word consider has to do with the idea of just giving attention to something, giving mental attention to it. In fact, you may remember we just finished a long series through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the passages at the beginning of Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus gives an illustration and says, why do you focus on the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and you don't pay any attention to the plank that's in your own eye. It's an analogy about hypocrisy. When he talks about that whole idea, the exact wording that he uses is, why do you look at the speck speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and not consider the plank in your own eye, not give attention to the fact that you've got a plank in your own eye? 
The author of Hebrews here is saying there's something that we need to give attention to. This is mental. This is thoughtful. I want you to pause and think about this. And then he tells us what he wants us to consider. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on. Now, let me tell you a funny thing about this word, the Greek word that's kind of behind this whole idea of spurring one another on. It's really just one Greek word. And the way that it's normally translated is provoke. Now, when I say provoke, do you think positive or negative? Yeah, you think negative. It's usually a negative word. In fact, in the Bible, it's usually a negative word. The other times that it's used, in fact, it's used in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love chapter that the Apostle Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind. He also says, love is not easily provoked. To be provoked normally means to be provoked to anger, to be angered. And, and we know this, any of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever purposefully provoked someone? You sort of knew. All right, Debbie, I told you not to raise your hands, but she's like me. I've done it. She's just going to assume all of you are raising your hands behind her. She doesn't realize. (laughs) We do this. Now, sometimes we do this in a way because we're trying to be mean. Sometimes we do this just because when you get to know somebody well enough, you kind of figure out what buttons buttons you can press to get a rise out of them. Um, There are now, I've been here long enough, there are enough people in my life, especially my family, but there are enough friends in my life that know my pet peeves. And so they're able to provoke me pretty easily because I have a lot of pet peeves and they usually revolve around words or phrases that I just think are dumb and that really annoy me. Um, So I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag with one of them. So one of the words that is in current common use that I can't stand is the word problematic. You're used all the time. I hate this word. It is a useless word. Everything is problematic. There is not a thing that exists in the world that is not potentially going to bring forth problems. It's the most cowardly word. People are like, well, I don't want to say it's bad. So I'll just say it's problematic and then I'm safe. Anyway, I don't know how people find out. I don't know how people find out my pet peeves. I can't figure out why they find out. It may be because I do things like that where I just rant and rave about these things. But now I have a whole bunch of people in my life that will provoke me with this word. My son, my oldest son, he is the worst. He just, he, and by the worst, I mean the best. He's the most inopportune. He'll just be like, oh, you think it's problematic, dad? I'm like, I, I get so frustrated. Now, here's the deal. If, if my family or if a group of friends wanted to get together and say, how can we most provoke Dan? They could get together and they could brainstorm. They could be like, well, we clearly know he hates problematic. There are all these other phrases or all these kind of different wrong uses of English or things that we can use. And we're just going to bring them all so that we can provoke him. Now, here's the parallel. The author of Hebrews is saying, not only do I want you to provoke one another, I want you to consider how to do it. I want you to get there beforehand. I want you to think about it. I want you to brainstorm. I want you to write notes. I want you to figure out the best way to provoke one another. But then he tells us what he wants to provoke one another to, and it's not anger. He says, provoke one another on toward love and good deeds. And this is one of those things that can't be done in isolation. You can listen to a sermon at home all by yourself. You can listen to good Christian music at home all by yourself. You can read the Bible at home. You can pray at home all by yourself. 
You cannot provoke other people on towards loving good works all by yourself. You've got to be with other people. And you could do it on a Sunday, but you're actually going to be much more effective at doing it in a smaller group of people or in a life group, which is how we most, most uh, focusedly practice this here at Life Bible Fellowship Church. They say, we want to get you around a group of other people, you know, somewhere between eight and 15 people, people that you will know well enough that you can figure out what is the button I can push, what is the thing that I can do to provoke them towards love for one another and towards the kind of good works that shine the light of Jesus in our community, that shine the light so that others will see that God is at work among us. He says, consider it, give attention to it, think of how you can provoke that in one another. And let me just give you an example of this. So, um, but today, after, after third service, we're going to have a baptism, um, which is always just a great time. I love our baptisms because we get to hear stories of how God has been at work in people. And, and when we look at baptism, we believe that what baptism is, is it is somebody going public. It's somebody saying, in public, before anybody who wants to hear it, I identify with Jesus. I've died with him. I've been raised with him. That's what baptism is. And so uh, uh, several months ago, there was a young woman who was getting baptized when we were down there, and she was telling a little bit of her story. And one of the things that she said is that she had been provoked, and my word, but she had been provoked towards greater faith in Jesus, and she had even been provoked to be baptized that day because of something that had happened in one of our church services about a month before. And that was Lori Lindley, who frequently sings up here. In fact, she's singing up here today. Um, she was leading worship that day, and she introduced a song that we frequently sing that, that part of the chorus says, we're no longer slaves to fear, we're children of God. And that theme was brought out. And as Lori introduced the song, she even talked about some ways that God had been using that song in her life. It was a, it was a very meaningful time where she, she opened up about how God had been at work in her life and then opened up this song to us so that we could sing and experience this reality. Well, during that time, this young woman was provoked not only to leaning into her fears and leaning into faith in Jesus through those fears, but she was provoked to say, I want to go public and I want to get baptized to show everybody that I have faith in Jesus. We can provoke one another on towards anger and frustration, but we can also provoke one another on towards love and good deeds. And the author here says, all right, here's our mindset. Here's our perspective. When we're united to Jesus, we're united to his people. And when we're united to his people, not only are we provoking one another on towards good things, but we're thinking in advance about how we can do it. In fact, I'll throw this in for, for those of you who are in life groups or for this year for, for those of you who are gonna join life groups don't just approach your life group time and saying, if an opportunity comes up during our meeting together to provoke other people on towards love and good deeds, I'll do it. Think beforehand, consider going into that life group time, pray about it, think about it. God, how might I through this time, knowing what I do about the other members of my group, what can I do to provoke godly behavior and godly perspective from all of them? He says, all right, that's the mindset. But now he's going to say, now there's a method to this. There's a certain method that we do. And in fact, to get more specific, he says, there's something that we don't do, and then there's something that we do. 
So the first thing he says is, and not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. So there's something that we say, we're not going to do this, but we are going to do this. So let's start with the not. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, which by the way, it can be easy for any age that you're living in, it, it can be easy to assume that what we're experiencing is utterly unique. It is not utterly unique that there would be believers in Jesus who would be tempted not to gather with God's people. That's not new. It was happening back here in the first century when the author of Hebrews is writing this. She says, some are in the habit of pulling away, but we don't. We don't give up meeting together. But I think it's worth at least pausing here and saying, why would we be tempted to give up on meeting together? Because as much as today we're talking about, hey, make the gathering of God's people on Sunday mornings, make that a priority and make joining a life group so that you can be around a smaller group of people and and you can really lean into it together, make that a priority. Why would it be tempting for us not to do those things? And I'll tell you, the reason is because those things cost us something. First of all, just, just from an objective standpoint, those things cost us time. And some of you, might not be involved or or very involved here at the church because you're saying, you know what? I have other things that just take my time. And I don't want to give up this kid's activity. I don't want to give up this other group I'm in. I don't want to give up the freedom to be able to just sort of leave for a weekend and go away and and water ski or do things that I like to do. I I don't want to give those things up. If you decide investing in the body of Christ is really important to me, it will cost you something. And not only will it cost you time, um, it will cost you anonymity. I remember back when I was a youth pastor, this was many years ago, but I've never forgotten this. One of, uh, one of our elders shared with our church about how important life groups had been in his life. But he also shared how for years, in, in fact, at least a decade, he had refused to get involved in one. His wife every year would say, let's get involved. And he said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to sign up. And then he admitted to all of us, the reason was because I said, if I join a life group, they'll find out about me. Now, it sounds pretty sinister. You're like, was this guy a serial killer? Like, what's going on here? But he wasn't. I mean, he was really, from kind of the world standpoint, he was a pretty good guy. But he knew if I get into a smaller group, they will find out about me. They'll find out about my flaws. They'll find out that I've got problems in my life. They'll probably find out about our marriage, that it's not as good as they might think from a distance. He was right. He was absolutely right. If you get into a life group, they will find out about you and they'll find out things that you could keep hidden pretty well if you just show up on a Sunday morning. But on the other hand, if you get into a life group, you know what's going to happen? People are going to find out about you. People are going to know what's going on in your life and you will experience more grace and acceptance than you would if you stayed in isolation. You're going to experience people praying for you. You're going to experience people asking you about things that you've asked for them to pray for you about because they actually know what's going on in your life. But, but let's not get away from the fact that there is a cost. If you're going into this and saying, oh, I can't stay anonymous, you're right. You can't. And, and let me just give a third one. When you get involved, especially in a life group, one of the other things that it costs you is it costs you comfort. Now, some of you in here, have you're part of a life group where you've been together for a long time and you're really, you know, you fit together like hand in glove. You've kind of found a groove with each other. 
Um, there's some of you in here that you're saying, all right, we're in a life group. It's not always super comfortable. In fact, there's this one guy in the life group that kind of drives me crazy. Some of you might be thinking, it's more than one. <laughs> there's people. I mean, Dalton complains to me every week about his life group. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Dalton. <laughs> Dalton loves his life group. I'm just joking around. But here's the deal. How many times, I, I want you just to think about this for a second. How many times, if you think back on your life and say, that was something where God grew me dramatically, where he really took me to a new level of maturity. When you think back to those times, how many of those times of great growth were the result of smooth sailing in your life? I'm going to guess not many. Discomfort is part of what grows us. And here's part of why I want to say this. If you're in your life group or if you sign up and you're like, all right, I'm finally going to do what they told me and I'm going to sign up for a life group. And then you show up and you're like, huh, this isn't exactly what I thought it would be. Don't take that as a sign that it's not working. It may be working exactly how it's supposed to. It may be working in a way that, yeah, there is that person in your life group that you kind of grade against. And one of the things that God is going to do is he is going to bring great unity between you and somebody that otherwise you wouldn't have spent much time with. What we learn in the New Testament is that the gospel of Jesus is meant to bring unity between the Jew and the Gentile, between the young and the old, between the rich and the poor, between races, between different socioeconomic classes. There's profound unity that the gospel brings. So if you're part of a life group and you're saying, there's some grading and there's some discomfort and we, we still have to kind of work some things out to figure out how we function as a group, don't take that as a sign that it's not working. It may be working exactly right. In fact, if it was too easy, it might not spur you on towards love and good deeds. He says, you know what? Even if it's difficult, even if there's a cost, we don't stop meeting together. And then he says, but there is something that we do. Instead of giving up meeting together, we encourage one another. And one of the things that I think is sad is the word encourage has, has sort of been neutered in our culture because it's come to basically mean uh, encouraging somebody is just giving them a compliment. If you walk into a room and you're like, hey, your outfit's really nice. I'm like, oh, thanks for the encouragement. And that's fine. That's a good thing to do. Give compliments. That, that's all fine. But encouragement is much deeper than that. It, it's much more in line with what the author was saying in verse 24 when he said, we're going to spur one another on. Encouraging is not just giving somebody a compliment about the past. It is spurring them on for the future. When I was in high school, I was on the swim team. And I, I wasn't really great at any particular um, uh, event at the swim meets. And so I just kind of fill in. And one of the things that I had to fill in with frequently was the 100 butterfly. Now, all right, good. Some of you, the, your reaction shows some of you understand swimming. Butterfly is the most exhausting stroke. It's the one where, you know, you're coming over the top like this. Um, it's exhausting. I wasn't great at it, but th sometimes they just needed me to swim it. So 100 butterfly is basically there and back, there and back, you know, f four laps. Um, and I remember one meet where we were on the road, and so we didn't even have like a lot of, you know, the people would come out and watch us normally there. We were away from our school. And I remember jumping into the water to get going for the 100 fly. And the very first time, the first time after I'd done my initial kicks that I came up out of the water for my stroke, I looked across all the way at the end of my lane. And kneeling there at the end of my lane was my friend Paul. 
And every time I came up out of the water for a breath, there was Paul kneeling by the side saying, keep going, Dan. Don't give up. Don't you dare give up. You're going to make it. Keep going. Keep going. And that just inspired me. I was like, he's right. I can do it. I'm going to keep going. And I got to the side. And then I flipped and I turned around. And I came out out of the water. And of course, there was nobody there because Paul was down there. But I'll tell you this, about the third stroke, about the third time that I came back out of the water, you know who was kneeling at the other end of the pool? It was Paul. He had come all the way around the pool to kneel in front of my lane, saying, don't you dare give up. You keep going. You're going to make it. You can do this. And he did that with all four laps. Here's what we get to do with one another. We get to be in life groups with one another. So we say, I, I know right now you guys are in the heat of it with your marriage and you kind of want to give up, but don't you dare give up. You keep going. You keep trusting God. You keep following him. He is going to make this pay off. Hey, I know right now you're in the midst of a battle with sin and you feel like sin is just inevitable and, and it's just so hard and you just want to give up. Don't you dare give up. You keep going. You keep trusting God. He's going to make this pay off. He's going to make this worth your while. Don't you dare give up on loving that person. Don't you dare give up on forgiving that person. You keep going. We're in this with you. Don't give up. Keep going. That's what the author's talking about where he says, encouraging one another. He's not just saying compliment each other on their hair. He's saying point each other towards what reality could be if we really follow Jesus. So this is the mindset that we have. The mindset that we have is that we're not in isolation. We are considering, we are thinking about how to spur one another on. And we do that not by abandoning the gatherings, but by encouraging one another. And then there's one last movement. He adds one last thing on to the end of this. He tells us that there's a message of unity. And that's the last phrase in verse 25. He says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want you to consider how to provoke one another on towards love and good works. Don't give up meeting together. Encourage one another. And do this all the more with all the more urgency as you see the day approaching. And the day that he's speaking of is the final day of judgment, is the day when Jesus finally returns and all things are sorted out. And the reason why this is so significant is because the author of Hebrews, again, he's grounding this in the story in which we find ourselves. He's not just saying, and if you don't do this, you'll live a lonely life. He's saying, if you don't do this, that when the day comes, you will have many more regrets about how you lived, and you'll have a lot less joy about the steps of faith that you took. Because even for those of us as believers, when Jesus returns, there's going to be regret and there's going to be joy. When Jesus returns, we are going to have absolute clarity on the way that we should have lived. And there will be things that we look back on and say, why did I waste my time on that? Why did I waste my money on that? Why did I waste my focus on that? Man, I wish I would have given more. I wish I would have spent more. I I wish I would have done more for Jesus because that's all that matters. And it also means that when Jesus returns, there's going to be joy that we have over sacrifices that we make now. Where you say, gosh, I kind of want to keep this money, but I'm going to go ahead and give it. Gosh, I kind of just want to stay home this night, but I'm going to gather with my group. Gosh, I want to just write this person off, but I'm going to go ahead and keep showing them love and compassion. Every step of faith is going to be a source of joy when the day comes. We don't know when Jesus will return. 
But what we know is today we're closer than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we'll be closer than we are today. We are moving closer. The story that we're in is not just a story where we're waiting out the clock and trying to be as comfortable as we can. We are living in a story where we have a real enemy looking to distract us and discourage us, and we want to stay focused that a day is coming where every step of faith will be shown to be worthwhile and every distraction will be shown to be just a pathetic attempt to wait out the clock. He says, do this and do this all the more as we as believers share in the faith that a day is coming when Jesus will be crowned as the final king. I want to put a question up here just for us to to think about as a group. And you can see on the screen, the question is, how can you give yourself to the people of Jesus in a fuller way? Um, Just as a preview, somebody has something to say about it. (laughs) Just as a preview, for the next four weeks after this week, we're going to be walking through 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to be walking through the analogy that the Apostle Paul gives about the body of Christ. We're members of the body, so we're one body, many members. One of the things that he brings out in that chapter is that we are not our own. And some of you might be thinking, I know I'm not my own. There's a passage that says, you are not your own. When you come to faith in Jesus, you don't belong to yourself, you belong to God. And that's true. But Paul brings out an even deeper reality in that. He says, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to the church. You belong to the body of Christ. The hand doesn't go off and say, who cares about them? The hand owes a debt to the body. We are not our own. We belong to one another. And so if you're in that category where you're saying, well, I'm here today, but I can't really say I'm committed, then probably what God is calling you to do is at the very least to take the step to say, I am going to make sure, barring some really big circumstance, I am with the body of Christ every week. I'm going to prioritize the gathering. I'm not going to let things get in the way of that. And if some of you are in the category where you're like, well, I already do that, then probably what God is going to call you to do this year is to take the plunge and join a life group. To say, I'm, I'm going I'm to cast off anonymity, I'm going to cast off my fears, and I'm going to get with a group, and I'm not going to assume that it's going to be great right away. I'm going to persevere in it. I'm going to believe that God is at work. And then even for those of you that have already done that, here's my encouragement to you. This year, as we get ready to launch our life groups, consider how God is calling you to be even more committed and even more given to that group that he's called you to be a part of. And for some of you, that may be as simple as saying, well, I'm signed up, I need to make sure I go. Like, I'm signed up, I need to make sure that I don't just show up every once in a while. I'm really going to make sure I'm there for this group. And for some of you, that may mean that you say, you know what, I'm with this group, I'm going to pray every day. I can't pray every day for, you know, however many, 800 people that show up here on a Sunday morning, but I can pray for 10 to 12 people on a regular basis. I'm going to pray for them. For some of you, it might mean every time we get ready for life group, I spend time on my own praying through and considering how I can provoke them that day towards love and good deeds. Now, one of the things that we get to do now, that we get to do next, is we get to celebrate a symbol that Jesus gave us of this great unity that we're talking about. Now, if you're going to be helping with communion, you can begin to head towards the back. 
But let me just say something about communion as we get ready to take it. We, we can often think of communion as a very individual interaction with God. We say, I, I, Dan Franklin, am now remembering what Jesus did for me. I'm now remembering that his body was broken, which is symbolized by the bread. I'm now remembering that his blood was shed, which is symbolized by the cup. I am remembering what Jesus did for me. But biblically, that's not the whole story. Because one of the things that's brought out in the New Testament is that when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the oneness that we have as the body of Christ. It's Jew and Gentile together. It's slave and master together. It's young and old together. It's rich and poor together. It's all of us. In fact, in a few minutes, all of us at the same time will eat the bread. And then at the same time, we'll drink the cup to demonstrate the fact that whatever your station in life is right now, we all came to become children of God in the same way. We came as humble beggars to the king who sacrificed himself for all of us. So as we get ready to partake, use this as a time not only to consider what Jesus has done for you, but use this time to consider your unity with the brothers and sisters that God has called you into community with. As we get ready to partake, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your deep grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that you've united us with Jesus. Thank you that you've united us with one another. And we pray that you would be honored as we take these elements. We pray that you focus our minds and our hearts on who you are and how you're at work within us. We love you and we thank you for the great sacrifice of Jesus. And we pray that you unify us with one another through this commonly held vision of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.